Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. Good morning, Christ Community Church. Well, hope you guys have had a good uh, week. Um, my, I, I tell you, man, I don't want to sound like a whiner and a complainer. Um, okay, um, so I'll just lean into it. Um, yeah, I've had the last year, it's just been like one little health snafu after another. I had shingles, then I had COVID, and then I had the flu. And then this week, I thought I had the flu again, and Megan was gone, and I had to cancel Bible study last week. And by the way, it's not Kayla's fault. My Bible study is actually, uh, will start up again in the fall, uh, just because I, I start my PhD program again this week and all other kind of stuff, and I'm finally within a year of winding that puppy down. So, um, but I thought, oh man, I, how can I get the flu again? It turned out, I just, I remembered uh, when I was 16, 15, 16 years old, uh, Dr. Hansel, who some of you may remember, diagnosed me with an ulcer, and it hasn't flared up in about 15, 20 years, but it, uh, you know, to quote the existential poet Dolly Parton, here you come again. Um, and it, it popped up this week, and I was, and I was just, uh, Megan was gone all week, and I've got her demon-possessed puppies, you know, nipping at me and everything, and I'm just laying there on the couch and holding my burning belly and, and, and just feeling sorry for myself and all the other kind of stuff. And, but here's what ended up happening was that, and this happens, I don't know about you, but when you get sick or you're faced with a health crisis, what happens? You end up praying about 10 times more than you do when everything's just going great, right? And by the time I woke up Friday morning, it started to subside, and, and my wife was home, and you know, all that kind of stuff, and it may have flared up because um, I'm in a little bit of a tiff with the IRS, um, which, by the way, when you call their helpline, it's not helpful. Um, but, you know, that, that'll work itself out. But um, anyway, it, it, I realized on Friday morning, I was laying there on Friday morning, and, and Megan looked at me. And she said, how you feeling? And I said, I feel a little better. And, and, and by the way, I don't know who invented Pepto-Bismol, but they should be sainted. Uh, God bless whoever that was. And, um, but Friday morning, I said, I, I, you know, I, I'm feeling better. And she said, how are you in the Lord? And I, I thought for a second, and she hadn't asked me that in a while. I thought, actually pretty good. And I realized that the reason, you know, I felt pretty close to God was I've been laying on my side holding my stomach that was burning and praying all week. I was like, huh, isn't that funny that I prayed all week and I feel closer to God? wonder where I've read that before. Oh, yeah, the Bible. Um, amazing how that works. Uh, we're going to talk about wisdom this morning. And... So wisdom, 
as defined by, and I can't remember if I got this from Merriam-Webster, Oxford. It says, you know, wisdom is defined as the soundness, the soundness of an action or decision with regard to the application of experience, knowledge, and good judgment. Now, I would argue that all those things hang together, that we, you cannot have wisdom without experience, knowledge, and good judgment. You take one of those out, and you're probably going to have an issue. Once upon a time, our culture looked to those with experience, knowledge, and good judgment. And typically that meant that they had some gray hairs. And we looked to those people for advice. But in the age of TikTok, good luck with that. I mean, I understand having a teenage son, and he's about to turn 20, but having a teenage son and having been a teenager, Every teenager thinks they know everything. And that lasts to about, you know, typically, if they go through the normal arc, till they're about 23. And then about the time they're 23, where they've started to spend at least six months to a year in real life, they realize, I don't know Jack. And so then, typically at that point, then they turn to somebody who's been there, done that, and ask them for advice. It took me a little longer, because I'm stubborn, but that's the way it went. And, and the ancient Israelites were interesting. They had a policy in ancient Israel that you were not allowed to speak in public until you were 30 years old. You could speak privately one-on-one -on -one with people, but you could not stand up in the synagogue or the town hall or whatever and say a word until you were at least 30 years old. Now, I looked it up this week. According to National Geographic and Oxford University, etc., the average lifespan was 25. What does that tell you? The yeah. The ancients basically said, if you've outlived everyone else, now you can talk. Until then, shut up. That's miles away from the culture of influencers, influencers isn't it? That was a different world, but I'm not sure that they were wrong. And they had a the Bible promotes the pursuit of wisdom. I got a number. I could have, I could have listed 20, 30 verses, but I've got a, some of there in your bulletin. Deuteronomy, 1 Kings, Psalms, Proverbs, on and on and on and on and on. Paul says it. It, it goes through the New Testament to pursue wisdom. But in this day and age, especially when we have literally libraries available to us but without any discernment and a culture of narcissism that tells us whatever we feel 
is right. We've got the knowledge, but how do you get wisdom from that? We have the information, but how do you get wisdom from that? And what I'm going to argue is simply this. That unless you have what's called a biblical worldview, that is, you have eyes that have been trained by Scripture and a community of fellow Jesus followers to run this against and the Holy Spirit, you're going to get it wrong. Knowledge in and of itself, even giftedness in and of itself, is not enough. I don't care how many degrees you have. I don't care. I was watching, um, as I was laying there this week, swatting my wife's puppies away from me and, and holding my stomach and, and um, on the couch. I, I was trying to find something. The news just flared my ulcer up more, so I was trying to find something else to watch. And I was watching this show, and they were talking about genius. The whole show was a documentary about genius. Where does genius come from? Is it purely genetic? All that kind of stuff. And so I'm watching this, and I'm a geek, so I'm fascinated by that kind of stuff, and I'm watching it. And they tell this tale of this kid. This kid was an incredible genius. Genius is, depending on which test you look at, the IQ tests basically say you have to have at least like somewhere between a 140 and a 148 to be considered a genius. This kid had something like a 180-something. He skipped grades, got a full ride to Harvard, earned his Ph.D. when he was like 23 years old, started teaching at Berkeley, and why he was there, and mathematics was his focus. He solved a mathematical problem that every mathematician, including prize-winning mathematicians, had said was unsolvable. He solved it within hours. An absolute genius. Now, those of you of certain age know the, who this is, but you know him as the Unabomber. Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, has one of the highest IQs in record and published some of the most insightful mathematical theorems ever published. Genius. Knowledge. Not a biblical worldview. Do you hear what I'm saying? Wisdom is not just knowledge, nor is it just experience. I've met a lot of people with experience that are just crotchety and nasty. It's not just that. It's experience, it's knowledge, and it's good judgment through the biblical worldview. Because if you're going to argue with God you're on the losing side of an argument. So, 
we pick up the story with the gospel project that we've been going through. David has died, and when David dies, his kids start to argue over who gets the throne, who gets to be the leader of Israel. And God makes a surprising choice. He picks Solomon. Now, we're used to hearing about Solomon, but at the time, this would have been scandalous. Because Solomon's mother was Bathsheba. You remember that David had killed Bathsheba's wife to get her, and then Bathsheba and David's first child had been taken by the Lord. And so who gets to succeed David? Solomon? He's not the oldest, and he's from her. And God says, no, he's the one. So, Solomon becomes the leader of Israel, and in 1 Kings, where we're going to go, 1 Kings 3, 1 Kings 3, 5 through 14, this is what happens after Solomon becomes the leader of Israel. You notice I don't like to use the word king because there was no king in Israel but God alone. 1 Kings 3, 5, the most important of these places of worship was at Gibeon. So, it says king, it shouldn't say that. The leader went there and sacrificed a thousand burnt offerings. That night, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream. And God said, what do you want? Ask, and I will give it to you. Solomon replied, you showed great and faithful love to your servant, my father David because he was honest and true and faithful to you. Hey, that rhymes. Now, you can read that again and go, what do you mean he was honest and faithful and true? Again, how was a leader measured in Israel? Did they make sure that only God and God alone was worshipped? And David did that. And you have continued to show this great and faithful love to him today by giving him a son to sit on his throne. Now, O Lord my God, you have made me leader instead of my father David, but I am like a little child who doesn't know his way around. That's the way you should approach everything, by the way, not knowing everything. And here I am in the midst of your own chosen people, a nation so great and numerous they cannot be counted. Give me an understanding heart so that I can govern your people well and know the difference between right and wrong. For who by himself is able to govern this great people of yours? Now notice this in verse 10. And keep this in mind and underline it. If you've got a Bible with you, jot it down. The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for wisdom. The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for wisdom. I get really irritated with Christians and especially Christian leaders who think we're supposed to be anti-intellectual dum-dums and just have blind faith and just walk around and, and wait for the Lord to zap something that irritates out of me. The Lord is pleased when you ask for wisdom. So God replied, 
Because you have asked for wisdom in governing my people with justice and have not asked for a long life or wealth. When are you going to hear Joel Osteen preach that? Um, because you have not asked for, sorry, I couldn't resist. Um, have not asked for long life or wealth or the death of your enemies. I will give you what you asked for. I will give you a wise and understanding heart, such as no one else has ever had or will. And I will also give you what you did not ask for, riches and fame. No other king in all the world will be compared to you for the rest of your life. And if, and if you follow me and obey my decrees or laws and my commands as your father David did, I will also give you a long life. I don't think I have to argue with anyone here that what our culture values as opposed to what Scripture values. What do we prize in our culture and by the way, this is nothing new. It's just been ramped up with social media. We prize looks, right? Money, especially because we think money will bring us security and comfort. Ask Steve Jobs when he was dying of pancreatic cancer as a billionaire how much security and comfort that brought him. We want praise. We want people to tell us how wonderful we are. And some of you, not me, want to be famous. I think anybody who wants to be famous today is crazy. Absolutely nuts. I was podcasting with a buddy of mine, he's not a Christian, this week on a movie podcast, lives up in Buffalo, New York, and he told me, he said, I don't want to be famous. I said, me neither. He goes, but I want to be rich. He said, I want to be rich, I just don't want anybody to know it. I said, I see the logic. You're rich, but nobody's coming around asking for a check, I get it. I get that. But what we have to ask is, let's say all that happens. Let's say you got the looks, you got the money, you've got the accolades, the praise, everybody loves you, they can't wait to see you coming. And then one day you're in a hospice bed and then what? Uh, my wife loves Turner Classic movies. She loves old movies. The only fear I have of my wife ever leaving me is if they create a time machine. Because she will get in it, go back into the late 1940s, and go looking for Cary Grant. 
But here's the thing. It's funny. When Megan talks to people about her love of classic movies and all this other kind of stuff and how much she, and she does, she loves Cary Grant. She also loves John Wayne, but she loves Cary Grant. And she thinks Cary Grant is just how she's explained it to me, much to my chagrin, but this, I, I'll get to this. This is a double-edged sword. She loves Cary Grant because he's so charming. He loves, she loves John Wayne because he's a man. And I'm like, okay. One, I don't like to hear you talk about why you like any man. But I put up with it because they're dead. You know, you're going to talk about a man, he'd better be dead. Um, but what's funny is when she talks to people about this stuff, especially people in her generation, but she can talk to people in my generation, and you bring up, you know, Humphrey Bogart or Cary Grant or Gary Cooper or Marilyn Monroe or whoever, most people, most people, everybody in the 1950s knew who they were. Everybody, people who couldn't name who the president was could tell you who Marilyn Monroe was and Cary Grant was and John Wayne was and so forth. Today, if you go out on the street, hardly anyone can tell you. They were rich, they were good looking, they were all this other kind of stuff, and then what? What's their legacy? They don't, I mean, what is John Wayne's legacy? I love John Wayne. Don't get me wrong. One of the few things, when I was growing up, my father and I were just like, like this. Today, we're more like, but there's unfortunately, we're too much alike. But the few things we could agree on growing up were sports, like, you know, he, he controlled the remote. Like when I was like five years old. In the 1970s, remember, you were lucky to have two TVs. Most of us had one. And when we had the one, when dad came home, it was like, oh, there goes the remote. But if the Reds were on or Kentucky was on or a John Wayne movie was on, we could agree on that. Fine. But John Wayne himself, this is why you should never, ever read about your idols. John Wayne was a mess. He was divorced four or five times. His kids from every marriage but his last wanted nothing to do with him. And he died young. And when they asked one of his co-stars, Bruce Dern, from the movie The Cowboys, what happened to John Wayne, what killed him, his response was, wild turkey and lucky strikes. In fact, the director, John Ford, who directed probably a third or maybe more of John Wayne's movies, used to give instructions to his film crew. He'd say, now, we're going to shoot all of the Duke's scenes before noon. And they said, before noon, we've got night shots. He's like, hang up drapes, make it look like night. I don't care. We're going to shoot all of John Wayne's scenes before noon. And they would ask why, and Ford would say, because at noon, that's when he cracks open the wild turkey. 
and come 2 o'clock, he won't remember any of his lines. So what kind of legacy is that? All the fame in the world, all the money in the world, and the legacy is what? We all, I know this sounds new agey, but it's actually biblical. We are all created, but we are also all eternal in this sense. We had a starting, unlike God, we had a starting point. But we will live forever, all of us. The question is where? With God or without God? That is wisdom. If that is looking at a true legacy, where do I spend eternity? Where do my kids spend eternity? Where do my grandchildren spend eternity? You can't completely control that, I know. I have seen good kids come out of bad homes. I've seen bad kids come out of good homes. There's not a formula. There just isn't. You can't beat yourself up about it one way or the other. But you should strive for it. You should fight for it. That should be your legacy. Your legacy should be what will echo through eternity, to quote the existential classic movie Gladiator. That's what it should be. And you do that by being a Christian, bringing other people to Christ, helping them grow in Christ, loving them, raising your kids in Christ, raising your grandkids in Christ. I know everybody, I hear this all the time, I get so many messages on Facebook Matt, the culture's falling apart. The world is falling apart. Everything, look at this, look at that, look at this news headline, look at that news headline. What are we going to do? I'm not worried. I'm not worried for two reasons. In the long term, I've read the book of Revelation, we win. In the short term, the only people having babies today are Christians. So, if you can't beat them, outbreed them. <laughs> so eventually, it's going to change. <laughs> but we need to be careful, again, not just because of what, how we are, our sinful nature wants us to believe this, our narcissistic culture wants us to gravitate towards whatever I feel is right, which means whatever I want, that, that makes it right, and that kind of stuff, and that influences our interpretation of Scripture and how we read Scripture or how we view life in general. And you need to be careful because even your habits, your habits can affect the way you see the world and discern truth. I don't know how many of you have ever had dogs. Um, one of the things you have to do when you get them young is crate train them. Uh, my wife undermined that because they would whine and she couldn't stand to hear them whine. So now I get to sleep with them. But Human beings can be, in a way, crate trained. We can 
go through our habits in such a way that it affects the way we see the world and the way we act and react and so forth. For example, I was listening to a podcast a couple weeks ago, and I thought this was interesting. I didn't know this. To go back to Turner Classic Movies and all kinds of stuff, when Megan's watching an old movie from like the 30s or the 40s or the 50s, and somebody gets on an elevator, you're never in an elevator alone. Why? There was an elevator operator, right? They would get in and do this thing, and then they'd push your button. And Do you know why they had those elevator operators in there? Because elevators freaked people out so much that they thought if they put somebody in there to control it, it would calm them down. So this goes on for decades. And then sometime in the 60s and into the 70s, major stores like Macy's and Gimbel's and so forth in New York City said, why are we paying a bunch of guys minimum wage to do this? We now have automatic elevators, purely automatic elevators. All they have to do is push a button. So they switched to automatic elevators. Guess what? People freaked out. They wouldn't go on them. It was, where's the controller? So you know what they started to do? This is how you can be crate trained, folks. How many of you have been on an elevator and heard a really bad instrumental version of a really bad Barry Manilow song. Right? They came to call it Muzak. Take soft songs, have a band just do an instrumental version, pump it through softly into the elevator. You know what they were doing? Calming you down. You don't think you can be crate trained? Oh, yes, you can. And that can affect what happens. We, one of the other podcasts I was listening to say studies now show that the biggest epidemic in the United States from a mental health view is not you know, all the stuff you hear a lot about, it's pure loneliness. Loneliness. Why? Well, part of it is because now we have an entire theater at home. We've got 500 streaming options. We've got Spotify. We've got, you know, we've got Pelotons. We've got, we never need to leave, we've got DoorDash. You know, we've got our phones. You don't need to leave the house to survive, really, if you've got the money in the bank, you don't have to leave the house. But then, the pandem- pandemic hit. And then we were all told, stay home. Stay home, stay home, stay home, stay home, stay home, stay home. It takes about 60 to 90 days to learn a habit. So what do you think happened to most people after a couple of years? They were crate trained to stay home. 
what happens if you just stay home all the time? You become lonely. You become lonely, you become depressed. We're being crate trained in other ways. I mean, you ever found it weird if you're on your phone, if you have one of these things, and you're on your phone, I imagine everybody in here but dad has one. He's still got a flip from phone from like 1999. Um, I don't know how the thing works. But you ever gone to like Amazon or wherever and look something up, and then you go to Facebook, and what does it have on there? What you just looked up. And then you go to another app, and it tells you where to eat, and it tells you what to watch. I remember thinking about this. Look, it's like, I was just kind of looking at my phone this week and thinking, in the last five minutes, my iPhone has told me what to eat, what to watch. It's like it's put me in assisted living. Those things can affect the way you see things, the way you see the world, the way you react, the way you interact. And you have to think about these things. You have to challenge these things. You have to think through these things. And you have to be careful that you don't bring this into the Word of God when you study the Word of God, because only from the Word of God and prayer and worship in community and getting to know your fellow Christians and loving them and so forth, that is the only way you Get wisdom, true, eternal wisdom. That's it. There's nothing else. There's no other way to do it. And it may seem completely counterintuitive. But if you think about it, God's way should be counterintuitive. We are sinful, he is not. We are finite, he is not. So, of course, his way of thinking is going to be different than our way of thinking. And we shouldn't fight against it, and we shouldn't try to domesticate it. We should accept it. God's wisdom has always been counterintuitive. The cross of Jesus Christ is counterintuitive. The Apostle Paul says what? It is foolishness to the non-Christian. That God must come and die in your place for your sins, for you to be saved, made no sense to people then or now. But that's God's way, not ours. Our way is a train wreck. I know you can't see it because it always, for whatever reason, this camera makes this purple shirt look blue. It's weird. I don't get it. But whatever. It's a purple shirt. It's uh, a shirt from my alma mater, Abilene Christian University. That's where I went to seminary. <clears throat> I don't know how many of you have been to, I actually met a guy at last night's service who had actually been to Abilene, Texas. I couldn't believe it. 
because um, it's hard to find Abilene, Texas. Because you fly to Dallas-Fort Worth, you start driving west, and for two and a half hours, there's nothing. Well, there's a Sonic and a snake farm. And that's it. And there's just nothing there. And then you get to Abilene, all of a sudden you're in a, in a town of 120,000 people that just popped out of the desert somehow. And when I was looking at Abilene back when I was thinking about going to seminary, and my dad had recommended it because he had gone to seminary with a lot of people who had gone to Abilene. He said, you should check it out. And I said, okay. So I reluctantly, I, I reluctantly went and I flew down to Dallas, and I drove out to Abilene, and I toured the place, and, and the guy who was the recruiter for the graduate school, he's like walking me around, and, and he's just, to he's bragging all the time about, because this is what Abilene's big on, is all the PhDs they've produced. You know, it's like, this is Professor such and such, he went here, and then he went to Oxford. And this is Professor such and such, and he went here, and he went to Yale. And this is Professor such and such, and he went here, and he went to Harvard, and all this other kind of stuff. And then he walks me to the bookstore, and in the bookstore, they've got this huge case of Max Lucado books. Now, if you don't know who that is, Max Lucado was, in the 90s and into the 2000s, probably the biggest-selling Christian author in the world. And he had a huge church of about 10,000 people down in San Antonio, Texas. And I was like, why aren't they bragging on Max Lucado? I picked up the books, like, he went here. And I was like, why aren't you bragging on Max Lucado? And I realized that they were just snobs, and they didn't care about some guy who just wrote books. They just cared about professors. And so I'm like, oh, yeah, 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 he went here too, moving on. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's weird. But I thought it was kind of cool, and so I started reading some of his books. And he was talking about, in one of his books, I don't remember which one it was, because I've read a bunch of them, and he publishes like two a year, so he can't keep up. But Max had graduated with his graduate degree from Abilene, and then he went and became a missionary in Brazil for a couple years. And he wrote this in his book. He was talking about godly wisdom, and part of godly wisdom is trusting God, being patient and just trusting God. That's a huge part of it. And so Max Lucado tells a story. He gets to Brazil, and he's all, he and his wife are all on fire. He's just convinced. You know, he spent the last two years, you know, learning Portuguese, and he's going to go out, and he's going to preach the gospel in Portuguese wherever it can be done. He's going to speak in, in, you know, uh, uh, anywhere he can. And bring all these people to Christ. And he gets there, and the first thing that happens is every single item of luggage, every trunk is seized by customs, and they don't release it for three months. That's the first thing that happens. Second thing that happens is he goes out, and he begins to preach. He may only have one pair of clothes, and he has to wash them every night, but he's going to go out there on the street, and he's going to preach the gospel, and he goes out there, and he starts speaking in Portuguese, and there's only one problem. They can't understand a word he's saying. Now, that shouldn't strike you as weird. 
Have you ever been anywhere with somebody who thought they learned English and recently migrated to this country and you couldn't understand a word they were saying? Right? There are accents, there are pronunciation problems, there are just, there's slang that they don't teach you. In fact, well, I lived in Los Angeles for two and a half years. Slang, actually Hispanic profanity, is all I learned. Because if you heard some of those words, you knew you were in trouble. They couldn't understand him. Not a word he was saying. And he was so frustrated. So he found somebody, some other missionaries recommended that could help him with his enunciation and learning slang, learning to pick up the pace a little bit, all that kind of stuff. And so he's working on it, and he's working on it, and he's working on it. Three weeks drags into four weeks, drags into six weeks, drags into eight weeks. And he's just getting impatient. And he's getting angry with God. So his instructor sits down and says, let me tell you a story. He said, it's a story that my father told me. I've told my children and now, Max, I want to tell you. He said, in a little village in Brazil, there was a carpenter. Now, listen to me, because I'm about to wrap up. One. Two, if you don't remember anything else from the sermon, just remember this story. Carpenter in a little village, living in a shack in the middle of the woods, dirt poor. Every day, he'd go out into the woods, chop some wood, put the wood in a sling, walk into town, and hope somebody would hire him to make something so that he would have money to eat that night. The one thing he had, though, more people came up to him than anything else. Not about his work. His woodwork was fine. He did a good job even with his few simple tools. What they wanted was the only other thing he had was a beautiful white stallion that he had inherited from his father. This beautiful horse. And everybody, every day, would come into the marketplace and try to buy it from him. And he'd say, always, it's not for sale. It's just a horse. And his friends in the market would make fun of him. They'd say, you're, you're a fool. You're an absolute fool. Every day you wait to see if you can even get one meal. You sell that horse, you'll eat for a year. Because even the rich were coming to inquire about it. Just, just sell the horse. And he'd say, no, it's more than a horse to me. And his friends told him, one of these days, when you're in the marketplace or you're asleep, because that horse is so beautiful and everybody wants it, somebody's going to steal it. And one day he woke up and he walks out and the horse is gone. And his friends tell him, we told you, you fool, we told you. Someone has stolen your horse. 
And he said, I don't know that. All I know is I have a horse, and now it's gone. And today, that's all I know. Well, they called him a fool again. And then, a few days later, the horse came back with leading six other wild stallions. So now he's got seven. And they, everyone in the marketplace looked at him and said, we were wrong, you were right. You had one horse, then you didn't have a horse, now you have seven horses. You're blessed, it's a blessing. He said, I don't know if it's a blessing or a curse. All I know is I had one horse, then I didn't, and now I have seven. Today, that's all I know. He gets married, the carpenter, has a son. The son one day decides to go out and ride one of the stallions. He gets thrown, breaks his back. His friends in the market say, you fool. It was a curse. See, it was a curse. Now you have no son to help you work, no legacy, no son to help you in your old age. You've been cursed. And he responded, I do not know if it is a blessing or a curse. All I know is that my son is hurt and I will take care of him. Today, that is all I know. A few years later, a war breaks out. A war that everyone in the village knows they can't win. And that many young men will be slaughtered. But the carpenter's son is not eligible to fight because of his back. And then suddenly all the people in the marketplace whose sons were being drafted into service say, we were wrong. It's a blessing. You'll have your son at least. We won't get our sons back. It's a blessing, not a curse. And he said, I, it is impossible to talk with you. He said, you always draw conclusions. No one knows. I say only this. Your sons had to go to war, and mine did not. No one knows if it is a blessing or a curse. No one is wise enough to know. Only God knows. When that old carpenter was asked where he got such wisdom, he said he learned it from another carpenter who said, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. We are anxious. We are lonely. We are depressed. We are angry. And what we need is faith, love, and wisdom. And what I'm asking you to do this week is the first step on that path is to trust God no matter where your life is. All you know is what is today. 
Only God knows what is tomorrow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive us for not trusting you, for not looking to you, for not fearing you. May we seek your wisdom so that we may discern when the world's wisdom is foolishness, so that we may truly follow you, love each other, and discern right from wrong. I pray this for all here, including myself. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, folks, thank you for coming. God bless you. God goes with you. I don't know what the future holds, but I predict there's a nap in mine. So, see ya. Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.